Well, good morning, Ville Church. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Open up your Bibles with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, We are teaching through the book of Genesis, and we are finally on the last major character. His name is Joseph. Wonderful. Now, um, I'm wondering, I'm wondering, I I have a hunch you have, I'm wondering if you have noticed this phenomenon in kids. If one kid finds an object that they think is interesting, all other kids in the vicinity find that object also equally as interesting, right? So let me give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, we're in my backyard. There's a bunch of kids in my backyard. I live on a forest, okay? Just to give you a category. There are sticks everywhere. One child finds a stick. Not an unusual stick, not a pretty stick, not a unique stick, just a stick, Every other child immediately requires to have that stick. I want to turn with the stick. I have to have the stick. Why do they get the stick and I don't get the stick? And I'm like, it's a stick. But let me tell you what happened in the soul of every single child. Their soul required that stick right now. Now, last week, um, I think about 50 of us from the church ended up going to a Hillsong United concert, and uh, so we had a couple extra tickets, and I, um, we took our children, now not all three, I've got three, 10, 8, and 6, a 6-year-old, my 6-year-old probably would not have appreciated the grandeur of the concert. Now, my 10 and 8-year-old, they had an actual appreciation for this, so they went, but let me tell you what my 6-year-old felt the whole time. Why do they get to stay up late and I don't, right? Totally legit. I have had that same feeling as a 12-year-old thinking about my older brothers, okay? And, and there's few things as frustrating as when being the younger brother, when the older siblings, they get all the stuff, they get the experiences, and my mom would regularly have to tell me, but you're only blank years old, Michael. You're not 16. You can't drive yet. And, and, uh, and so here's what I, here's what I uh, had to do. I had to create an equal experience for my son. So yesterday, I had a friend of mine from Michigan. He has a six-year-old boy. So we both went to Warren Dudes for the entire day, and we played together, and they wrestled and played in the water, and it was a blast. But there was this, like, palpable experience in my son of, like, injustice that they got something, and then he didn't. They get quality time. They get to stay up late. And then as we go to the concert, by the way, um, they hear that my son had ice cream, They, they spent three hours worshiping with a bunch of village churchers and a few thousand other people. They get out, they hear he had ice cream, and on the way home, they're mad because he had ice cream. The next day, they're saying, well, X got ice cream last night. We should get ice cream today. It's only just. And I'm like, you went to a concert. Like, this was epic, and you're upset that, like, if you had to switch right now, would you switch? Would you give up the concert for ice cream? No, not, I, didn't, I didn't think so. I never, I never quite anticipated that so much of my parenting would be equally distributing experiences and toys amongst all of my children. Any other parents have this, right? Right? Now, don't get me wrong. I do, there is a level of injustice in my home. I do like, give some kids things that I don't give others just to like, teach them the lesson. But by and large, like, why do I do this? Why do I equally distribute, by and large, experiences and objects? Let me say it this way. Parental favoritism crushes the human soul, right? Like, if I permit 
parental favoritism to linger inside of the soul of my child, it will ruin them. And so, yes, there are some things that the older kids get to do that the younger don't. That's just life. But there is this reality that when my kids start to be concerned that favoritism is there, that I am liking or loving or distributing uh, with some level of inequity something to one child over another, then there is this this internal like eruption inside of them, injustice. And I've actually had my kids look at me and say, you love them more than me. And I'm like, whoa, pause. That is the dumbest thing that has ever come out of your mouth. We're going to have a moment right now. I'm going to eradicate that from your mind, heart, and vocabulary. Vocabulary, but it's astounding how, equally, how, how quickly that kids' hearts will go to that very reality. Now, what would it be like if you did this in your home? What would it be like if you gave one kid something more, more affection, more love, more experiences, more toys, and then you left all the other ones out? What would the experience in your home be? It would be insanity, would it not? I, I need you to hear me. In the story of Joseph, his dad is Jacob, and Jacob did this to 11 out of 13 of his kids. That from the time they were very young, he showed favoritism and partiality to one, if not two, because he liked their mother better than the others. And I want you to understand what we're about to see in this story. You need to understand this context because what Jacob effectively did is he crushed the soul of his sons. He crushed the soul of his daughter. In fact, the first time we meet his daughter, it basically says she's a woman of the streets. And that's why she's in Canaanite territory, perusing with Canaanite men. It's why she's in the context that she is. 11 out of 13 of Jacob's sons experienced partiality in a way that crushed their soul. And I want you to hear me. All of them hated Joseph for it, with a fury and with a passion. So like last week, we were in 37, 1 through 11. And I want to just give you like a little brief overview of some things. Uh, It says three times in five verses that the brothers hated Joseph. I don't want to just show you this progression. Look at 37 verse 4. It says they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Like every comment was sarcastic. Every, everything that they said to him was demeaning and demoralizing. And again, if you've had older brothers especially, you know their great capacity for crushing your soul, right? Watch, one verse later, it says, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him. What are those words? Even more. We get a few verses later in verse 8, it says, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And so you're watching this hatred inside of them grow and grow and grow. Why do they hate him so much? I'm going to give you one word, and it's going to be the theme of this entire message. Jealousy. That's it. 37.11, look what it says. And his brothers were jealous of him. At the core of it, hatred was the byproduct of jealousy. That there was something deep down in their souls. They wanted something that Joseph had. What were they jealous of? I want to explain this to you because this will guide everything that you need to understand what is going to happen in the rest of Genesis 37. There were two longings of the human soul. By the way, every human in this room has these longings that Joseph had, or at least they felt he had, that they didn't. And here's number one, the love of your earthly father. 
the love of your earthly father. And so right, right off in Genesis 37.3, he says, now Israel loved, and last week Ryan talked about this word. It's a word that has come up all throughout the book of Genesis. It's a Hebrew word, ahava. It's not sexual love. It's not friendship love. It is a deep soul-knitted love. This is supposed to happen internally within a nuclear family unit. And also for every man and woman, you'll be lucky to have one, two, or three relationships throughout the whole of your life where you have ahava with them. Remember King David, his soul was knitted in love to Jonathan. They were best friends. That is ahava love. And, and let me just tell you what every child needs from their dad. Don't get me wrong, moms too, but dads, God has created you to have a very unique and specific impact in development in your children. When a dad withholds ahava, it crushes the spirit of a child. Now, Jacob, I want to just rewind. He's already done this to one of his wives, has he not? What did Leah want that Jacob gave to Rachel? Literally, it says, ahava, that he gave his soul-knitting love to one wife, and the other didn't have it, and then it sent Rachel on a downward spiral, and it ruined her life. The love of your earthly father. And here's what we also know, that developmentally, that dads, you were developing their God concept, that when you have a negligent or terrible dad, here's what often happens in the souls of your children. It is more difficult for them to understand easily and love the nature of God. So dads, you have a huge role to show them the best of your ability and all of your fallenness, the nature and the character of God. And when we fall short, which we do probably hourly, if not daily, we own it and we tell them that's not what God's like. I did this and that was wrong, but God's different. Because we have to understand that even our sin and struggles, they start to develop a God concept like that. And that's why we need to redirect those things and then open up the word and show our children the nature and the character of God. Let me just tell you this, that Jacob's brothers didn't understand the nature and the character of God. And then here's the second thing, the second longing of the soul they did not have, which is the love of their heavenly father. Whether they had it or not may be up for debate, but I can tell you this, they didn't feel like they had it. Now there's a, 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 just a simple word that shows up in Genesis 35, and it says this, now Joseph had a dream. Now we have dreams, right? Uh, and for us, dreams aren't a big deal, but in the ancient Near East, especially in Jewish culture, a dream that was memorable would have this imprinting on your soul like you couldn't shake it. And when you had one of these dreams, it was a symbol or a sign that God or the gods were communicating with you. And if it was a good dream, it wasn't just that the gods were pursuing you and talking to you. It's that they had favor on you. And so when Joseph tells his brothers the dream, here's implicitly what he's telling them. God likes me more than you. God has a relationship with me. Have you had a dream? Has God shown up and talked to you, have you ever, I'm just curious, uh, have you ever met somebody where faith comes really easy to them? Where God experiences are normal for them? Where the voice of God is always clear? Where doubts, I don't know, seem to never plague them? Do they irritate you? <laughs> I call it easy believers. And that's not a bad thing. God gives, the Bible says, to each a measure of faith. And for some people, faith is really easy because that is a gift that God has given them. We always say it requires a mustard seed of faith to be saved, but a mustard seed of faith is accompanied by much, much skepticism and many questions. 
And so when I see people who have a mustard seed of faith and a billion questions, I honor that. But here's what I find when people are skeptics by nature and they're around easy believers. They get really judgmental and irritated. Like, they must be simple. Or they don't think about the hard things of life. Well, guess what? People who believe easy love easier too. You spend all your time thinking and ruminating and questioning, they spend a lot more time loving people. So I'm not sure which is better. But it's interesting that when you're the skeptic, you tend to get very judgmental of people who, quote, think less than you do, right? And so here's what we find. We find that it is a very human experience that when somebody has easy believism, when their relationship with God looks and feels easy, our propensity is to irritation and judgmentalism. So I want you to understand this now. Joseph has the two deepest longings that these brothers have, the love of an earthly father and the love of a heavenly father, and this infuriates them. Look at Genesis 37, 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem. Israel, that's also Jacob, he got a new name, this is the dad, said to Joseph, Joseph is the second youngest brother, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, here I am. And he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. I mean, 12 to 14 are telling us a couple things uh, we should already know if we're reading this story. Number one, it tells us J- Joseph, or Jacob, Israel, does not trust the brothers at all, does he? These brothers have shown themselves to be irresponsible, impulsive, and they have already, through their impulsiveness, jeopardized the whole family's life and all of their wealth. So let's just, let's just put it this way. If you have an employee, men and women, those of you who have anybody who work for you, if you have an employee and you don't have confidence in them, do you double check on them? The answer is yes. And if you're an employee and you find that your boss doesn't have confidence in you, do you find that they typically double check on you? The answer is Yes, when a boss has to double check on an employee, no one's happy. The employee says, who are you? Why don't you trust me? And the boss says, why don't you do your job? And there's tension, is there not? Well, the boss is also the dad. And the dad and the boss have the same experience. They have no confidence. And so he sends the younger brother to go check upon them, which is absolutely insulting. So not only do they not have um, their father's ahava, not only do they not believe they have God's ahava, now they don't have his trust, and now they're sending the little brother to come over and check on them. And it tells us the second thing we already know, that Jacob has put Joseph in management over his brothers. This is what the multicolored coat actually was. It was a beautiful coat that in its structure symbolized oversight or management. And so by giving him the coat, he gave it to him because he liked him and he loved him and he trusted him, but he gave it to them and with the coat came authority and responsibility over the brothers. Now I want to make a basic geographical observation right now. Um, They are in the Valley of Hebron and he has to go to Shechem because that's where the brothers are. This is a 50 mile journey on foot, okay? It's like Rockford. Hey, by the way, walk to Rockford because I don't trust your brothers, I think they're dumb, so go walk there and make sure they're doing what they're doing. Take like a week of your life and then check on them and then come back and give me a report to what's going on. And a man, verse 15, found him, Joseph, wandering in the fields. FYI, he's not wandering because he doesn't know where he is. Why is he wandering? Because he can't find the brothers. 
right? You send, you send your people to a location to work, and when you show up at the location, they're not there. What's the feeling inside of you? Irritation? <laughs> Maybe anger? Like, this is just like them. They always do this. Verse 15 goes on. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? Joseph says, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. This is probably embarrassing for Joseph. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them in Dothan. By the way, Dothan is another 15 miles north. So now we're not just going to Rockford. We're going to about 10 miles past the outer limits of Rockford from Village Church. How do you feel if you're Joseph? Do you want to spend your time doing this? No. You are irritated. You are angry. There's not a lot of good things. Like when Joseph shows up and finds them, do you think he's like, what's up, guys? How's it going? You having a good day? Hey, just here to check on you. Like that's not at all what's going on here. Dothan actually means two wells. And it's obviously a place with two wells. And we'd learn a couple things about Dothan. We don't know a lot, but here's what we know. Dothan was a place where you could pasture your animals. You could bring a whole bunch of sheep and whatnot, and they could graze and feed. Uh, but it also was the center of a trade route that went between Syria and Egypt. And so if you went to Dothan, this would be a place where you could typically buy luxury goods. And so here's the brothers. They're supposed to be working. They're supposed to be pasturing the flock. They're supposed to be doing what they do. And they're like, well, we can do our job, and we can go uh, immerse ourselves in some luxury goods and get some stuff that we want. Maybe we can buy some people. Maybe we can buy some things. Maybe we can sell some of our father's flock and we can do some of this. But something drew them there. Verse 18 says this. They, the brothers, saw him, Joseph, from afar. And before he came near to them, hear this, they conspired against him to kill him. I mean, sometimes people are capable of things that you never imagined, right? It's interesting because earlier we've seen that the brothers are super willing to kill Canaanites, a lot of them, women, children, etc. But Canaanites, they're vile, evil, terrible people who will kill you if you don't kill them first. So I, I get killing Canaanites, but to kill your blood, this is like a new, this is a new category of low. What brought them to this point? Jealousy. What brought them to a level of hatred? I mean, before the hatred, there was jealousy. There are two kinds of jealousy. I want to make a a distinction between them because jealousy isn't always bad. The first kind of jealousy is what we call righteous jealousy. That is when that which is rightly yours is taken away. You take my child, my wife, I am jealous. I want what is rightfully mine back. This is a good impulse. And the actions that overflow from this kind of jealousy are usually righteous, although they can be righteous, unrighteous. We see in in all throughout the Old Testament that God is a jealous God. Is God sinning by being jealous? Everybody say, no, not at all, right? No. And so here, here's an example of this. He says, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Listen to this. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Uh, we learn something about jealousy here. God's jealousy is righteous, right? But jealousy is never stable. Jealousy is always moving in a direction. There are two options with jealousy. 
You either overcome it and kill it, or it acts. Now, you, you may be thinking it only acts maybe in aggression. Well, there's passivity. Have you ever felt hostility from somebody and they never said a word to you, right? Sometimes it's passive-aggressive. Sometimes it's aggressive. The brothers here, they are aggressive men, and so they're actually acting out within the act of hate and speaking negatively, ultimately with murdering him. But here's what we see, even in the nature of God, jealousy is never a stable element. It's always moving in a direction. It's always moving in a direction. And, and somehow this experience in the human soul, it's very tender, it's very fragile, and it's not something to play around with. We talk about bitterness also as being another one of these root sins that corrupts you from the inside out. And I just want to put forward to you that jealousy is another one of those things that when you see it, be very careful, it is unstable and it moves very quickly in a direction. The second kind of jealousy is what we call sinful jealousy. And this is when you want something God doesn't want for you. Anybody experience this? You can raise your hand. Everybody in this room, by the way, I will judge all of you right now. All of you have been in this place at one time or another. When you want something that God doesn't want for you. There's a pathway to this. And uh, in your community groups, I want to invite you guys to process this out. And we call it the pathway to sinful jealousy. And before you get to this hatred, right, which manifests itself in aggression or passive aggression or passivity, uh, before that is jealousy. But jealousy didn't just pop out of nowhere, did it? There's actually a heart progression to how you get here. Before that is this state of discontentment. And discontentment is supernatural because it doesn't matter who you are. Wherever you live, you're going to be living next to someone else. Wherever you're at, someone is not going to be next to you. Now, here's the deal. Every one of you will park in this parking lot, and you will park next to a car. And by nature, you'll look at the car next to you. One of the cars is more expensive than the other. You will go to someone's house. One of their homes is more expensive than the other. You'll rub shoulders with families. One of the families is more healthier than the others. Everywhere you go is a sense that somebody is either better than you or worse than you in some area of your life. And the human condition is one toward, I want the best now. I deserve the best now. And so it's this constant state of discontentment. This is actually one of the greatest challenges of American culture right now is the spirit of it's never enough. There's always somebody more, better, stronger. And then even when they have more, right, they might have more stuff or money, but honestly, like their family might be falling apart. And so we're often looking at all the wrong things as we compare ourselves to each other. But this is normal. But the, the Christian has to recognize discontentment because discontentment has a trajectory, the trajectory is to jealousy, which is the hatred. But before even discontentment, number one, you get ingratitude. I, I am telling you, I think this is one of the most core virtues of the Christian faith. Uh, we choose gratitude, whether life is good or bad or something in between, daily. We give thanks to God constantly, no matter how terrible or frustrating the circumstances are. Why? Because ingratitude begins a devastating trajectory for the human soul. Ingratitude begets discontentment, which begets jealousy, which begets hatred. And this is just not a trajectory we're made for. I just want you to see this. When you see jealousy in you, I want you to catch this. It's because a whole bunch of other decisions happened before that. Like we like to think, oh, I'm just jealous. I'm struggling with jealousy. I would actually contend, no, you're not. You're struggling with discontentment, which is a rooted issue of struggling with ingratitude. It's interesting how when you experience hatred, it's rarely about the hatred. 
It's actually about multiple other things that have happened before that. And my contention is get to the root, which is gratitude for a lot of these sins. Now, depending on what the sin is, there's a different root. But this is where gratitude inevitably takes the human soul. And guess what happens? Every time the people of God are ingrateful in the Old Testament, God gets really angry and he disciplines them over and over and over and over again. I would just contend that the fight for gratitude is one of the most important fights that the Christian can fight. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. This is, by the way, mocking his relationship with God. It's mocking his calling. It's mocking his easy believism. That is obviously making them frustrated and they're becoming very judgmental of him, which is normal for skeptics. They say, come now, let us. And I want, I want to draw your attention to all the they, them, us. This seems to be, by and large, a decision of the 11. There's one or two defectors that we'll see, but they don't really defect a lot. They're kind of weak. Uh, what the author wants you to know, that this is just a collective decision amongst the group. Uh, you can't really hold one person uniquely responsible for this. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. This is not just an assault on Joseph, by the way. This is an assault on his dad. This is an assault on his God. This this is their way of saying, if we can't have it, nobody can. Pure hubris. Then verse 21, Reuben chimes in, and I appreciate what Reuben does. Don't get me wrong. Reuben's also a pretty terrible dude. Rewind. Reuben slept with his dad's concubine. Just as like a, I'll do whatever I want. It's super personal, by the way. Don't ever do that. Well, first of all, don't have a concubine. Second of all, (laughs) if you do, don't sleep with your dad's concubine. Some of you don't know me, so just to make sure we're clear on all the jots and tittles. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, now he didn't actually physically, but he's, he's putting forth a conversation that is going to stop this from happening. He says, let us not take his life. I mean, Reuben probably wants to get back in his dad's good graces. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. So logical. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. This is what's so dumb. Okay, I'm Reuben. I'm like, I want to win back my father's love. Okay, fine. Um, So, hey guys, let's throw him into a pit. And then secretly in his brain, he's thinking, I'll go get him. Well, the other brother's like, yeah, don't kill him. Throw him in a pit. Let's just, can you just think about this for a moment? What's going to happen in the pit? Right? Like, he he either gets out. Because remember, this this is a trading post, if you will. Like, people are traveling through this area all the time. All he's got to do is yell loud enough. Somebody gets him out. He comes back home. He's caught. Here's the deal. In, the, in, a, in a spirit of rage, there is no common sense whatsoever, is there? In, in a spirit of rage, you're thinking about here, now, problem gone. You're not processing the implications of events. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, just watch these verbs. This is so stark and sad. They stripped him of his robe the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. He came, they stripped, took, threw. I probably spent most of my, like, 
empathy time in this text, just putting myself in Joseph's shoes. Uh, I do have three older brothers, and I'm just trying to imagine I show up at a family gathering, and they literally beat me, strip me naked, and throw me in a pit and leave me to die. I'm just trying to process. I honestly don't have the categories. I don't have the categories for it. It's so unexpected and surreal and not in my frame of, of life or reality. I had some questions. Did he go quietly into the pit? Which one pushed him in? That's, I had that question. Like, who, who just pushed him? Did they get like three or four of them together and like throw him in? Which ones was it? How badly did they beat him? What did he feel inside? Was he angry? angry? Was he sad? Was he betrayed? Like, how deep was the pit? That changes it, doesn't it? Like if it's a four-foot pit, you're like, well, maybe he can scratch his way out. If it's a 30 or 40-foot pit, the dude's lucky to survive. How long was he in the pit? A day? Two days? Did he sit there and weep? Did he pass out? So here's a question, and it's going to be a weird question, but go with it. What would you do if you just left your brother for dead beat him, stripped him, threw him into a pit. What would you do next? Here's what they did. They sat down to eat. Do you see like the cold-bloodedness of this whole thing? Uh, it's the quickness with which, with, with which the narrative moves where the author wants you to just say, whoa, these guys are legitimately cold-blooded killers. No time to contemplate the ripple effects of their actions. They wanted their problem gone. 25 goes on. It says, looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. These are like their great uncle, I believe, great uncle's people. These are relatives coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on the way to carry down to Egypt. Then Judah, he chimes in. He said to his brothers, what profit is it? Like, hey, guys. Munch, 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 Doritos, PB&J. We can make some money off this kid. That's a great idea. I mean, he's kind of beat up, but like, why go home broke? Let's sell the kid. Genius idea. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? That's dumb. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. Like, he's concerned about innocence right now. Isn't that interesting? In, in, in the moments of murder and selling your brother into slavery and beating him and stripping him and throwing him into a pit, he's like, well, I don't want blood on my hands. Like, that's his greatest concern. Okay. For he is our brother. Why would I kill him? Let's sell him. Let's beat him and throw him into a pit. He's our brother. Like, he deserves better than that. Don't kill him. And the brothers, I mean, part of me thinks these guys are just morons. They're like, yeah, good idea. Reuben, good idea. Yeah, good idea. Like, whatever the last idea is, they're like, that's a good idea. Their motivation now became profit. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph out, lifted him up out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, which, by the way, is a super cheap price for a slave, like the cheapest that you can go. Meaning, despite his age, he may have been very bloodied, broken. The implication is, as the original readers hear this, is, wow, that's, that's cheap. Like, you sell old people for that much money, but all right, we're selling a 17 to 18-year-old kid for this much money. Says they took Joseph to Egypt. 29, when Reuben returned to the pit, we don't know where Reuben was in any of this, by the way. Like, 
maybe he's the one who went off and just kind of reflected on things and it says, when Reuben returned to the pit, he saw Joseph was not in the pit. He tore his clothes, returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? What have you done? We can't go back to dad. They're like, oh, we didn't tell you? We drew him out and we sold him. He's on his way to Egypt. Like, was this a day later, two days later? Like, do you run after him? Do you go try to buy him back? Then they took Joseph's robe. And they slaughtered a goat. They dipped the road in blood. I mean, just process the time and the energy that this takes, the cold-heartedness, the planning. Like, you do one dumb thing, then you got to cover it up. This is just unending and stupid. And they sent the robe of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, this we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. I mean, you hear this duplicity? And he identified and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And you can already feel so much of the irony in this text. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments. He put sackcloth on his loins and he mourned his son for many days. Check this out, verse 35. All his sons and daughters, they rose up to comfort him. They're there, dad. It must be so hard. Love us. We're here. Aw, dad. Like this is almost... Hard to read when you play the TV show or the movie in your brain. But he refused to be comforted and he said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. I've got no more ahava to give. It was all given to him. None of you get it. Thus his father wept for him. And here's what they knew Joseph would not have wept for, or Jacob would not have wept for a single one of his other sons. He didn't weep for Dinah. His daughter, when she was raped, the, the brothers had to go in and take vengeance for her. Like, there isn't even this like, inkling of protection over any of these other siblings. Verse 36 sets us up for our next stories. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Isn't the Lord always up to something? Like, there's this idea, if you're Joseph, like, where, where are you, God, if you loved me, blank, you know, you know, the whole narrative and series of lies that we tell ourselves over and over again, and the entire time, the Lord is up to something amazing. Unfortunately, you have to wait 12 weeks to get there, or you can just go read to the end of the book of Genesis, like, today, and you can figure that out. The question is looming over Genesis 37, and it's going to loom over the entire rest of the book. Here's the question. Can Joseph overcome this betrayal? Can Joseph forgive? So what? I'll give you three so what's. Number one, who have you hated because of jealousy? Remember, it's not just aggression. It could be passive aggression or passivity. If you... Read the text, and you don't put yourself in the brother's shoes and identify with them, you're probably thinking a little too highly of yourself. Now, this may be a struggle you killed years ago. Wonderful. But, but it's worth at least acknowledging, who have you hated because of jealousy? James 3.16, listen to this. It says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. The articulation of the New Testament, of the entire Bible, 
is that when jealousy exists, vile conduct is the byproduct. And again, that vile conduct might be all internal. It might be private gossip and slander. It might be actual acts of physical aggression. I don't know what it is for you. Your temperament probably exposes or applies your hatred in, in different ways from the people next to you. Question number two, who have you been irritated with because of their faith or their calling? Let's start with faith. You're the skeptic. Who irritates you because their faith is easy? Process that. God gives to each a measure of faith. It's interesting, your frustration, it's misplaced. It has very little to do with that person. It has everything to do with God who allots the measure of faith. That person who's your emotional punching bag, verbal punching bag, whatever, it's really God who you're punching in that moment. And why would you want their life to be hard? Let's just, let's go there for a moment. So theirs is easy and yours is hard, so you want theirs to be hard why? Does it even make any sense when we're saying it like that? But this is what jealousy does to us. It makes us want other people to feel pain like we feel it. How backwards is that? Is that love? No. Is it what the Spirit of God produces in us? No. And yet probably most of us in this room can empathize with that very thing Wanting pain for someone because we have it and we don't like that they have it easier. Let's talk about calling. Uh, obviously, you know pastors get jealous of other pastors. That's like not a, that's not a new thing. There's like competition. Your church is bigger than my church. Whatever, all dumb stuff, really. I'll be honest. Christians do the same thing who aren't pastors. Why do you get to be a director? Why do you get to be an elder? Why do you get to be a deacon? You know, like... I want that, I want this calling. Why do you get to be a pastor? Why do you get to... Gosh, we hear it in different ways frequently. Ambition, jealousy. Somebody has a calling or a privilege or an opportunity or an experience that you want. And so what happens? Oftentimes we get angry at the people who get the very things we want. FYI, in terms of calling, they didn't choose it. God calls. In terms of faith, they didn't choose how little or much they had. I, I jotted some notes on here, and, and for some of you, this could be maybe helpful. We are jealous of platforms that should we have them, they would crush us. Saul got the kingship, and it destroyed him. He looked at this platform. He was hesitant to it. But when he got into it, the entire weight of the leadership role ruined the man's soul. We were often jealous of objects that, let's be honest, should we have them, they would corrupt us. You look at someone's standard of living and their toys and you want them and you're like, God, why didn't you give it to me? And maybe God didn't give it to you because your soul is not able to steward it well. They would own you, you would not own it. Maybe you're broke and poor even though you've made really good decisions because your soul isn't created to have more. 
Maybe your brokenness, your small home is God's way of saying, I love you so much that I'm going to preserve your heart before I give you all the ambitions of your flesh. We're often jealous of blessings that should we have them, they would undo us. We're often jealous of responsibilities that should we have them, forget about corrupting us and ruining us. We would just miserably fail. How many of you look at your boss's job and you think, I could do that with my eyes closed? You don't know that you can, and maybe you could, but maybe the Lord isn't giving it to you because you would fail. Maybe that's it. We're often jealous of relationships. Why do they get the guy, the girl, that person that God didn't design us for? Like, I, you just watch these, these, these couples. They're, they're so young, and they're like, I want that girl. Well, that girl doesn't love Jesus, and you do. You're not designed by nature of your soul and spirit and makeup to collaborate together in the context. You're not supposed to pursue that. That's not how God has designed you. And you want it, right? Who have you been irritated with because of their faith or their calling? Finally, number three. Let me offer you a better pathway from ingratitude to gratitude. I'll tell you this. You practice the art of gratitude daily, and you mean it. I mean, sometimes you're going to be thankful for things that you're not actually thankful for. God, I'm thankful for this pain. God, I'm thankful for this broken relationship. God, I'm thankful for this lost thing, this lost money, whatever it is. And are you thankful? (laughs) I'm thankful for this trial. No, I'm not thankful for any of that at all. I like life to be happy and simple and easy, right? But sometimes you just got to go before the Lord and, and, and tell him you're thankful for things, even if you're not. And he knows you're not lying. He knows you're trying to get your heart to that place. Like, I'm trying to get there. Like, I don't want to be there, but I'm there. Gratitude, let alone how unbelievably amazing all of our lives are. Could you imagine going to church 200 years ago on this day? 100 years ago? You'd be roasting. You'd be sleeping. You'd be unconscious. If you didn't drink enough water, you'd be dehydrated. You'd have to walk home on your horse. You'd step in horse poop. Like, people, you got a lot to be thankful for, right? Number two, from discontentment to contentment. Gratitude produces contentment. That's the byproduct. It's one of the most beautiful byproducts. And I'm telling you, a content person, they are a rejoicing person. When you are able to rejoice with those who rejoice, you are onto something awesome. When your friend or your neighbor gets that thing that your heart all of a sudden, like once they got it, you're like, oh, I want it now, right? And you can rejoice with them. Like you're in a, that is a work of the Holy Spirit rooted in gratitude. When you're able to rejoice with somebody, your disposition to them is sincere love. Do you see how this, from hatred to love, like, but it's all rooted. I want to come back to this. Gratitude. This is what it produces. This is a decision. It's gut-wrenching. It's hard, but it is worth it. And it'll be one of the greatest gifts you give to yourself, your spouse, your family, your friends, everyone in your life, a person of gratitude, they are attractive. Uh, <clears throat> most Sundays at Village Church, we celebrate communion. And this Sunday, I've been particularly um, struck by the similarity between Joseph and Jesus. And in communion, we're reminded that we have a Savior who knows difficulty, who knows betrayal, 
Who knows what it's like to be conspired against? Who knows what it's like to have people you love put their hands on you and try to kill you? In fact, with Jesus, they succeeded because he let them. In communion, we're reminded that we have a savior who knows what it's like to fight for contentment. And think about this. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, here's what he prays twice. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Translation, I want it easier. If, it were, if there's any possible way that, like, you know, the wrath, your wrath can be poured out on my body, soul, and emotions, and it doesn't have to happen in this way, if there's any other way, can we make it easier? But if it's not, your will be done. I mean, I, I, look, at, I look at Joseph and... I just see Jesus all over this. And as we celebrate communion, I just want you to remember that whatever your plight is, whatever your difficulty is, whatever your frustration is, if Joseph is the one you're identifying with this in the story, um, let me tell you, Jesus gets it. I can also look at you and say, if you're the brothers and jealousy is overtaking you and consuming you and that is where you're at, uh, I want to tell you that Jesus, his blood covers your sin breaks the power of it over your life and the Holy Spirit gives you the freedom to never have to choose that again. I don't care who you empathize with more in this story, whether it's Joseph or the brothers, Jesus is for you. Jesus understands you and Jesus died for you. And so as we come to this communion table, I just want to submit Jesus before you and just remind you of what our God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Communion for me, every, every week I pray a pretty similar prayer. I probably goes over most people's heads, but um, I say in one way or another, um, Lord, we are grateful. Lord, increase our gratitude. Lord, we pray this in a spirit of gratitude because uh, I don't ever want to get to a place where I take for granted what Jesus has done for me personally. And so even now, like some of you, you know, we've taken this for granted and I want to come back to this heart of gratitude and say, you know what? The best antidote to overcoming jealousy is a heart of gratitude through faith in Christ. Some of you are here, you've never trusted in Jesus in your entire life. And I just want to submit before you Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and has risen from the dead, who's coming back again. And salvation in him is by faith, not by works. Praise God, because we could never be good enough. I want to submit before you a God who loves you and offers you forgiveness of your sins, you brothers of Joseph. Personally, I am so grateful for what Jesus has done. I'm so grateful that I did not have to work and be good enough to get salvation, but Jesus was good enough for me. And so some of you are here and and communion is a weird time for you and I want to just make a request of you that if you've never trusted in Christ before, uh, these elements are going to pass by in a moment. I want to ask, would you not partake of the elements? The reason we ask this is because to partake of these elements is a, a declaration It's a declaration that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. It's a declaration that that you are a sinner, that he was raised from the dead, that he's coming back. That's a huge declaration. If you're not ready to make it, we understand. Some of you are visiting from other churches. I'm gonna invite you. Would you partake of communion with us? We are one body in Christ. I don't care where you go to church. If you have trusted in Christ, let's rejoice and remember together because in heaven, I don't think there's gonna be local churches. Rumor has it. Here's what we do. We have a moment of just silence. And it's an opportunity to reflect and to remember. 
Uh, at the end of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to stand and worship together. While we're worshiping, the elements will be handed out. Would you do me a favor? Would you hold on to them until the end of the song? And then what we're going to do is when the song's over, I'll come back up, and we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's spend some time in silence. Father, we are grateful. Fill us with more gratitude, awe, wonder of what you have accomplished for us. God, I know we understand such a minuscule percentage of what you've done for us. But I pray, God, you would give us an even deeper glimpse into that, what that would leave us in a spirit of rejoicing because our sins are forgiven. Your ahava has been poured out onto us with finality and clarity. Our future is secure. There's no place in hell for anyone who's trusted in Jesus. We are so thankful. You've saved us from so much and you've saved us to so much more. So Lord, as we worship you, as we get ready to partake of these elements, we remember and we are grateful in Jesus' name.